Another version of the Mere Mortal book reviews. Today I've got two books. First one, The Rape of Nanking by Iris Chang, and the second, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I'll get into the uh, Rape of Nanking first, as that was the order I actually read it in. And this was an interesting book. I'd heard of it from, I believe it was Jocko's podcast and potentially a couple of other sources. And uh, it was about a massacre that I'd actually never heard of before um, when the Japanese invaded China. So just a bit of context on, on the whole book. The book was written in 1997 uh, by the author Iris Chang, who was a, um, I, I don't know if she was a Chinese immigrant. I think she was American, uh, but with potentially Chinese uh, immigrant um, parents in the US, who told her a lot about this uh, massacre occurring in, in Nanking, or also known as Nanjing, in China. And uh, this occurred, occurred just before World War II. So um, it was actually saying in the book, you know, a lot of countries think of World War II starting at different times. For the uh, Europe European sort of, I guess, group, it would be when Hitler invaded Poland. When For the Americans, it would have been when the Japanese uh, bombed Pearl, Pearl Harbor. And for the Chinese, I guess, was when uh, the Japanese invaded China. Uh, and so I can't remember when they, the exact events leading up to it. Or, well, it actually didn't cover it in this book. But essentially in November of 1937, the, Chinese, uh, the Japanese had conquered Shanghai finally after a long, brutal battle. And they then set their sights on the, I guess, like government capital of Nanking. So they arrived there and they, I guess, conquered that very shortly afterwards in December 13th, 1937. And essentially the, the, the Chinese surrendered. There was a massive army there, uh, but for many reasons, they, they essentially surrendered. And so there was this massive scramble of, of the troops trying to get across the river, which essentially encloses Nanking. Uh, and the Japanese were able to relatively stroll through into the city and, and capture it. Why it occurred there, the massacre, would I guess is up to the, you know, the, the historical times, the the circumstances leading up to the the capture of the city. Uh, essentially, it seemed to boil down to a couple of things: the the I guess inherent nature of, of the Japanese and and the way they were fighting the relative ease which they rolled into the to the city and faced with the problem of a massive civilian population and also a, a large contingent of soldiers left over and what to do with them uh, and some errings at the high leadership of the Japanese all contributed to this this massacre happening and so what essentially happened is for the six weeks after they captured Nanking there was just brutality beyond measure. Uh, if I actually have recently, after reading this book, gone back to Jocko's podcast and listened to him, and when he describes it, he, he really gets into it deep and you can feel the emotion. Uh, I think it. this is one of the times where maybe hearing someone or watching someone read from this book is, is a bit more impactful than actually just reading it yourself. Uh, maybe that was because I read some other sort of massacre books uh, just before this. Uh, but, yeah, it, it didn't come across as heavily as, as it did when uh, when Jocko was actually reading from the book. Uh, 
The estimated death was around 200 to 300,000. Uh, it depends on who you're actually talking to. The Japanese have had like a long history of, of denying, or not denying the massacre, but uh, downplaying the relative scale of it. And it included rape, murder, disembowelment, just killing contests, fire decapitation, um, any sort of method you can think of of killing someone that the Japanese had a, had a crack at it. There was, uh, so during this time, just before the, the Japanese actually entered, a group of foreigners living in the city created the International Safety Zone. And I can't remember how big it was, but it was essentially, it was a, a chunk of the, the city center where they, I guess, arbitrarily said, if you enter here, there's the International Safety Zone. Uh, we'll keep you, I guess, safe as much as, as one can be in that situation. And the aim of that was just to protect as many civilians as possible. Leading up to it, no one had a real clue that this was in the offing, I suppose. The, I, I think if, if it had been known, one, there would have been a, a greater fright, fight by the actual Chinese um, army and the civilians as well, I think, would have had radically different, uh, made radically different choices of, of deciding whether to stay or how they acted in that situation. Uh, because there was a lot of trust. The Japanese uh, sent leaflets over the city saying, like, if you turn yourself in, the Japanese will give you rice, will feed you, will clothe you, will look after you. And the exact opposite turned out to happen, really. They, uh, the rape and pillage and just awful atrocity that happened over the six weeks eventually subsided uh, when the... Japanese told the, I guess, civilian population, okay, go back to your homes. And I, while I doubt they very much cared after them, and while I doubt that the, the killings and the rape stopped, they certainly lessened. Uh, there's a couple of themes in the book which, which really struck out to me. Uh, number one was, I suppose, the, the character of the massacre and, and why, why this massacre was so different from, for example, the, the one committed in Germany, which was a lot more systematic. It, it sort of, I guess, involved, I guess, a, a less brutality, if you can put it that way. It seemed to be that there was, there was less of an influence of individual Germans doing the most horrific things they could, whereas the, the Germans in their efficiency, which the, the Germans are known for, created a system which managed to herd large people, large groups of people together and, and systematically murder them. The, the Japanese one was, uh, yeah, it, it had this animal brutality to it. The, I guess the amount of hate and individual just onus on, on Japanese, the Japanese army entering was, each one of you is, is going to take part in this. And uh, this book is, is very good at giving the side of the, I guess, the Chinese and the, the observers, uh, but doesn't really get into the, the Japanese point of view and, and what their experience was like. And there's, I, I think it, it's, it's hard to get that because, one, people are, are very not very willing to, to talk about their side of the story when they are the perpetrators and, you know, it's after the event and how is this going to be viewed um, afterwards, uh, 
but also the, I, I guess it's it's just very, it's it's not that great to to hear stories from the uh, the people doing the the brutality and there's I guess like a lack of interest in in wanting to know what that is like. Um, I would be intrigued by that book, but I can imagine the the uproar it would be that would be caused by say a, a Nazi who who put out a book of of their experiences of killing people, of the the murder, the rape, the the awful awful things that went on. Uh, so the the Japanese one, uh, it's it seemed to have been influenced a lot by how they were treated themselves, and there's this saying, "Hurt people, hurt people." So the Japanese themselves, in in their I guess long lineage of warfare and their history of of the samurai, the bushido culture, influenced the individual Japanese on the scene to act in a way where they were given the opportunity to to be the the masters over a, over a, a scum people the the chinese which they had a very old i guess hatred a, a a long history of of combat and and dislike of each other so they they had very strict upbringings they were essentially treated like garbage because the the emperor was was all that there is and his family and then the individual Japanese people are garbage and then underneath them is so worse than garbage would be the Chinese so it seemed to be when they got the opportunity to I guess have some power have some control they used it in the like the worst way possible and they lost control of themselves and formed this this mass of of hatred and and killing and just awful awful resentment maybe there was a there was a sex, sexual aspect to it uh, the a lot of rape went on in the city and there's numerous stories in the in the book of the I guess foreigners going out and trying to protect the women because they seem to have some sort of hold the the swastika on their arm or or just even being white seem to have some sort of power over the Japanese and if they saw a rape they could literally go up to them and and say stop like you know yell at them stop them from from occurring but there was only you know a handful of foreigners in this massive city of hundreds of thousands how are they going to stop every single incident that occurs so there seemed to be a lot of maybe sexual frustration, some pent up desire from from the Japanese, and they seemed to do this weird thing where they would treat the the women as women while raping them, and then once that was done, they were scum, and then anything could be done to them afterwards. They they essentially became worthless, uh, and there seemed to be a lot of of killings of the women directly related in a sexual manner. So they would, they would, you know, insert iron poles into the women's vaginas, cut open pregnant women's uh, stomachs and, and, you know, kill the fetus. Uh, A lot of terrible, terrible things done during and after their, their, I guess their sexual release. And it, 
it uh, it boggles the mind that they uh, they're able to do these sorts of things um, where they they must have got into some sort of state where they didn't believe that these these people were humans they were subhumans and that's the only way I can I can try and imagine how this could occur um, across such a, a huge group of people uh, the the number of Japanese, there, there's no, I guess, real number of how many of them were, were doing this. So it's hard to say, was it individual psychopaths, which it seems very much doubtful uh, considering the numbers of dead? Was it a ingrained culture? Uh, this did seem to be a, an order from the top uh, right after they had captured the city where there was like an implicit order saying, these these people need to be killed, but it wasn't like an explicit de facto thing of the army. Uh, it gets into a little bit of of the of their main leader Matsui, General Matsui, who becomes ill just before the overtaking of the city, and one of the princes um, of the emperor, Princess uh, Asaka, takes control, uh, and he might not have the ethical integrity the the same understanding of history and of military procedures as the the normal general did so it seemed to indicate like a lack of leadership from the top as well uh which obviously would filter down to the you know the the foot soldier and influence how he acts the other part other theme that i found quite interesting was the the japanese denial of the event uh which still continues to this day I, I remember doing just some research after reading the book and there was a 2015 article of how the UN had included a I don't know if it was like a, a memoir or some sort of tribute to the the dead and the massacre that occurred um, or UNICEF sorry and uh, in, in place of UN and the the Japanese government, had a you know a strongly worded objection to this being included, um, and you know saying it's un- an unfortunate event and blah blah blah, uh, and it it's it's really hard to get a grasp of, of why is this one able to be rejected and denied, whereas something like the Holocaust is is not so much. I mean, there's there's individuals out there who who will still do that, but you know this is on a, a government on a societal level. There seemed to be a couple of things. One, the the documentation wasn't as much. So when the Japanese surrendered after the, the A-bombs had been dropped, they had the time to destroy as many incriminating documents as they could. So there wasn't that same level of of record-keeping that there was when the, the Germans um, fell because theirs was a almost like a... It wasn't a, a, a line in the sand, like, obviously we've lost. The, the German retreat occurred gradually over time. Uh, a reluctance of the victims to step forward. So for for a lot of the young women, and uh, the Japanese didn't set their sights just on the young women, anyone from the age, of age, age range of you know, 6 to 80 were, were, were raped and sexually assaulted in this, in this massacre, in this rape. Um, and in Asian culture, there is a, a strong emphasis on the purity of, of being a virgin of of the shame that occurs from from sleeping around and they're I guess very sexually repressed in that way 
whether that's still the case today, uh, I don't know. I think there's still some inclinations of that, but nowhere, probably nowhere as near on the level as it was in um, 1937. And the this, I guess, would would cause a reluctance to step forward to tell their story. Uh, that combined with the um, communist takeover of China shortly afterwards and their needing to establish relations with Japan meant that there wasn't this this push, this, um, I guess, like antagonism that, that occurred after the, the Jews were released and they were able to form Israel and, and settle in a different location. So that combined with potentially some limited media attention, um, obviously World War II occurred right after this and that's where you know, that involved the whole of Europe, that involved the United States as well. So people are much more interested in, in that. So this story gets a bit, I guess, like a, a bit lost in the, um, in the, you know, overwhelming information that was, that came out of that. Those were a couple of themes, plenty more in the book, but those two that uh, jumped out at me, uh, a couple of observations for me as well. Uh, right at the start, the author bias uh, was one of the very first things I noticed um, she seemed to have this need, this desire to um, prove just how big of a of a you know event this was. And right in her opening remarks in the book, she has you know some re- just very weird examples. Um, so she compares them to the A bombs and says how the amount of victims from this totally eclipses you know both of them combined. And then even later in the book admits, oh, okay, the, I guess, well, if you include the, the victims from the aftermath of the A-bombs, from the radiation poisoning, the, the sickness, the disease that followed, it was still less than, you know, any individual one of them. So it just had this weird dynamic where she was trying to prove, I guess, that, that this was a, a big deal. Um, and then included just random things like if the bodies were all stacked in a train, it would be 2,500 railroad cars. Uh, there were, if you collected all of their blood, it would be 1,200 tons of blood. Who needs that statistic? I don't know. Welcome back to the review. Had some technical difficulties with the camera, so I'll just keep going on from where I left. As I was saying, the her just her insistence on using these weird statistics of of comparison just, just for me seemed, I don't know, it, it just didn't seem like that of any objective look at, at the situation. Not that she ever claimed to, to be fully objective, but for me, it, it just, uh, you know, it just triggered something in me that's saying, okay, just be careful of, of ex- everything she's written in, in, in this book. Another observation was the emperor and, and how his family became unprosecutable after the fall of, of Japan. So basically they surrendered and as part of their surrender to the to the US, uh, it was a stipulation that the emperor and his family could not be put on trial for war crimes. And I think if you looked at how Prince Osaka behaved in in his role as the, I guess, leader of the forces entering into Nanking, the blame really should be put or put on him. Um, Matsui had some role in it as well, but one of the things of these these war trial these yeah war trials after the after the war is finished is that they're, they're looking for 
I guess, a scapegoat as, as one part of it. And, you know, there's this innate human desire for vengeance and it's almost like, can, can society continue if we don't have this vengeance? And it, to me, it just seemed absolutely ridiculous that one of the people most responsible for it was able to get off the hook. And, you know, that's a re- that's a real shame, real, real shame. The Nazi in the story, a man called John Rabe, who was the ambassador of the the German embassy in, in Nanking, he, this is one of those times where it, it really makes it easy to, to show just how complex these things can be. So John Rabe was a, I guess, full-blown Nazi, believed in the propaganda, believed in the the what nas- national social socialism had to offer and its tenets, its core principles. And yet he is not what you would call a, a classic Nazi scapegoat. He was a hero. He was one of the people known as, I guess, uh, the Buddha of, of Nanking. He was the one who helped set up the international safety zone. He was the one who looked after people individually. So he would be going out on the streets using his authority as a, as a Westerner to, to stop rapes happening from stop killings happening. And yes, he was a Nazi and he was also a hero. So how, how you can combine these two things together, uh, you need to have a bit of nuance and, um, you know, appreciate that, that life is, is not always as easy as, as pointing the finger and saying, you know, blaming someone for something. Uh, it was interesting as well seeing how he went back to Germany and then he had a real tough time of it. He was living, um, you know, he didn't have that, any accolades or any prestige or power there. And after the war, after the war was finished, he, him and his family were starving. And I guess it just goes, goes to show that good deeds don't go, um, you know, unfulfilled, don't get returned because when he was starving, the, the people of Shanghai helped send him money, send him food uh, because of all, all the, the great things that he did, um, which helped him get through that, that tough time uh, after the war was finished. The, the final epilogue detailing the, the mental break of the author uh, you know, it's a, it's a real sad story of, of Iris Chang and, and how she, um, yeah, appeared to have this, this bipolar disorder or, or something switched in her brain um, a couple of years after the book was published. Um, and, you know, how much of that's biological, how much of that was because she was dealing in, you know, researching in depth and getting so close to this material uh, how much that affected her mental state, you know, it's, uh, I guess, impossible to know. Um, but I suppose it is just one thing to, to know that the, you know, these things can't be taken lightly, that if, if you go down a rabbit hole of, of, of thinking about, you know, massacres and all the bad things that have happened in the world, uh, you, you're very likely to, to have some mental issues as well because it's, it's just so brutal. It's so hard to read these things and, you know, live a normal life. Overall, I'm giving the book a, a 6 out of 10. I found it interesting. The fact I had, you know, never really heard of, of the rape of, of Nanking. I barely even knew that Japan invaded China, um, you know, before slash during World War II. And knowing about this, I, I, 
I think is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's important not to forget how these things happen. Um, but on the actual topic itself, I've never really had that much of a huge interest in, in Asia and, and, you know, their military pursuits, their, their history in that sort of sense. Um, reading about this one was, was very, very hard as well. The, um, especially when I had some photos in the book of, of, you know, yeah, women be raped and, and tortured, just mass bodies, people being buried alive, things like that. It's just really, really hard to read it. And then just, I suppose those, those couple of things I noticed with the, the bias of, of the author showing through just, just gave it a slight tinge of me not really getting into the book as much. So I'm going to switch now onto the other book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. This book hit home. This was probably the best book I've read in the, in the past year. Uh, it was printed in, in 1946 and has been reprinted over a hundred times. So it's a very popular book. Uh, it comes in two parts. The first is the experiences of a concentration in a concentration camp and the logotherapy, which is, uh, the, the author's, I guess, version of psychotherapy. Uh, and the way he describes it as less retrospective and less introspective than some of the classic um, psychoanalysis done by Freud and, and people of his generation. Uh, it's, and it's more focused on the, on the future meaning of, of the person and, I guess, giving them something to, to live for. I, I think it's not as critical of, of the past and, you know, really detailing how Oh, everything stems from this sexual um, energy that we have inside of us and, and things like that. It's, it's more, it seemed to me more of a practical approach and, you know, accepting and looking at things that happened in your past and explain how you got to here to a certain point, but then what can you do from now and, and into the future that will, that will benefit you. So themes in the book, the, the book is pretty much all about meaning. And like I said, I, I want to do a proper review of this, uh, you know, a full podcast episode because this book just has so much depth into it, even though it's relatively short and can be read probably in a, in a single, in a single sitting, it's, it just really hits home at some points. And the, the author, what, what I really liked about it was um, it, it's sort of his guide to how to, how to live a positive life, how to, to, you know, not accept the nihilism that can come through the suffering that each and every one of us endures. And for some people, the suffering is, you know, minimal at best. Um, and, and then you can compare it to someone like Viktor Frankl who, lost his, his wife, lost his brother, lost his mum and dad in the concentration camps. And, you know, he went into them with all these things, with a life, and then came out of it with nothing. And the book, I, I suppose, is, is his exposition, why he talks about meaning. And for me, this really hits home. I, for a long time, have never really understood why there seems to be such a, a focus on, on happiness in, in today's A and age. Um, 
because for me, I, I've noticed like I'm not happy all the time and, and this pursuit for happiness seems to me like a, a bit of a dead end because you can only push yourself so far. There's only so many things you can go after and, and you know, using happiness as a goal seems like a real transient something to aim for. Um, I, I'm of the belief that you find the meaning in your life and then happiness can occur as a result of that. Uh, and I feel while he didn't say exactly that, I, I, I would say he, Viktor Frankl probably thinks along those sorts of lines or thought along those sorts of lines as well. So some of the observations I, I really got from the book, his desire to publish anonymously, I think really, really helped the writing of it. There's, although there are experiences of him in the camps, they're not focused on him as the individual. It's, it's I suppose, like a, a way of showing why and how certain things can happen and, and to emphasise his points. Uh, his refutation of the collective guilt is I, I think shows a real courage of 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 being of uh, of like I guess someone who has really thought about ethics and and what they mean and his own moral choices uh, and that's that's tremendous like I I just can't believe that someone can go through what he experienced and come out of it not filled with rage and hate and and wanting to to blame the the Nazis as a whole, but he, he puts it on the individual. Was this person a, you know, a, a Nazi sadist in the camps or was it just a, you know, a, a person who somehow got mixed up into this ridiculous, crazy murderous system um, and was trying to do his best to leave a, you know, to live a, a life as well. I think that shows tremendous courage on his part. Uh, his focus on the individual is, I, I feel, a, a real critical part as well. If you compare, you know, today's day and age where there's this emphasis on what race are you? Are you man? Are you woman, female? Are you trans? Like you're putting everyone in these groups and I, I really like how he focused on it's the individual you need to think about. Uh, he, he, as a person, seems to be just almost above reproach in, in his actions and his morality. Uh, his decision when he had the option to leave, he, he was granted a US visa, he could have left with his wife um, and he really thought about it and said, no, like I, I can't leave my family, I can't leave my mum and dad and my brother here. And knowing full well that they were likely to, to be put in the camps if and he would be likely to be put in the camps if he stayed as well. Uh, just tremendous courage on his part and um you know i i feel reading the books and reading of people who who make these sacrifices who make these choices uh, helps you to grow as a person as well or, or gives you the, the the hope that you could potentially live up to a similar sort of standard and it's, it's really inspirational i see a lot of of Jordan Peterson in Viktor Frankl, or most likely the opposite way around, where Jordan Peterson was influenced, I think, by a lot of the thoughts in this book. It's almost like um, he, he Jordan Peterson found a way to re regurgitate, to, to put it in a different format, to use sim a lot more symbolism and, and different talking points, but a lot of 
of what he, of what he emphasizes is in this book. You can see it. You can see it leaking out of the book. And um, I, I am a tremendous admirer of, of Jordan Peterson, and I, just from reading this book, have become a tremendous admirer of Viktor Frankl. I won't get too much more into it. Uh, the The book was was amazing, and I do plan on rereading it. And it's uh, overall giving it an eight and a half out of ten, which is pretty damn good for me. Uh, my only drawback was. Uh, as it was written in his second language, in English, it it was difficult to understand in some parts, and he had this style of of communicating that at some points were just really, really tough to to understand exactly what he was trying to say. Uh, but there were moments in this book where he would he would drop a like a, a one sentence, which would just blow me away, and this happened multiple times in the book what exactly it was about that sentence. I think it was the build-up. I think it was was how he wrote it and deconstructed it. I'll talk about those in a, in a different, um, in the podcast with Juan. But there was, there was times in this book where it, it just hits you, just those moments where you're like, okay, there's something important here and I, I need to figure out what it is. So those are the two books, Man's Search for Meaning for, by Viktor Frankl and The Rape of Nanking by Iris Chang. Hope you enjoyed.